A killer idea I heard the other day, and something totally unrelated to accounting firm running, to build a database of your clients' problems. Don't have to have anything to do with accounting or tax. Build that out, and it's going to give you uh, not only a bottomless source with which you can produce content and you know try to keep focused on what's being helpful, but craft what you do around their pains. Rather than crafting what you do around what accounting firms do, you craft it around like the identity of that person and the stuff that they struggle with every day. So I sat down, did some journaling, like literally did a hyper-practical build a database of this client's problems. Uh, I'm going to run through that with you, get some ideas on how you can use those problems as you detail them out uh, and just generate some good ideas along the way. So come on in. Let's build a little database of client problems. Mitchell Baldridge framed this really well when we talked with him uh, a few weeks back. uh, His framing is that your client always needs to be the hero of the story. So as we're putting out content and talking about what we do and all of that, it can be tricky sometimes to not say the things that you want to hear versus like, what are the things that clients want to hear? Like there are the things that you think are important And then there are the pains that your clients actually feel. And those aren't always the same things. Like there's not always overlap there. And so while you may see the value of good accounting for decision-making or being proactive about taxes because you've seen it save a bunch of people a bunch of money, are your clients sitting on their couch right now thinking, hmm, I wish I had better information with which to make decisions? or, Or... I wish my accounting was better. Like it's probably not that direct. They're probably feeling that in more nuanced ways that are specific to the work that they do and the problems that they have in the work that they do. So I sat down, I jotted down uh, 15 problems that I know dentists have. Uh, Dentists were probably who I was spending most of my time with by the end of firm running. This doesn't have to be dentists. There's probably a lot of other businesses that share these same problems. But I want to run you through how I developed this list and how I would use each of these items on the list to make my services more targeted and build content around them. And again here, there's no need to fixate on tax and accounting problems. In fact, I think this can actually be a trap for firms sometimes because uh, prospective clients know that you do tax and or accounting And every other accountant says they do the same thing. So when you talk about solving for tax and accounting, to me, that's not all that interesting compared to solving things that may be like peripherally related or maybe even not at all related, but you're talking about nuanced problems that type of person has in a way that will make your ideal client open their eyes and be like, oh shoot, this person understands what I do at a level of depth that my current guy or my current person doesn't understand, right? So I like, again, it's not holding yourself out as necessarily being an expert, but you are okay talking about things that are not accounting and tax because you have a unique window into those things that most people don't because you see the dirty deeds, you see behind the scenes for all these uh, entrepreneurs and the stuff that they get wrong in a way that not many people do. So let me run you through this little database I made of problems for dentists. I think uh, 
as with most things, some version of this is a problem that is shared by, by many entrepreneurs, but specifically how these things convert into how I position my services and how I present myself online. I think that's the more interesting discussion. Uh, up first, running cash deposits. Uh, dentists ultimately don't want to trust other people for handling cash, at least not when they get started. Uh, they don't want to have to give them whatever authorization they need to be able to make go make those deposits. Uh, some dentists will like let a practice manager do it because they've risen to this level of, you know, sort of different authority, which like shouldn't impact your controls or the level of trust you have to have in a person. Uh, sometimes they will do it themselves, which means it only happens once a week or once every couple few weeks, or they'll have their spouse do it. It's just one of those things that is not a dentist spending time in the chair that has to get done that is kind of a struggle because it's um, there's a degree of trust required. And so it's just a sticky thing that people don't know how to handle. Uh, there are a bunch of like internal controls approaches to solving this from, um, I've seen people do stuff like having to have two people there anytime you take a cash payment to putting the cash into an envelope and writing how much money is on that. And that gets tied back to the practice management system. There are ways to manage this in your internal controls. Um, but Dentists who don't spend all their time hanging out with other dentists, like you don't just wake up and know the right way to do this. And this is an area where you could absolutely help. Um, and so for each of these items in the database, uh, there's four kind of, I want to put it through four lenses of, of different things you could do with it. What would a blog post look like? What would social media posts look like? What would a video look like? And what would a podcast interview pitch look like if you want to go on somebody's podcast to talk about this. So specifically around cash deposits, um, a blog post could be as simple as like, here are three different ways to manage this in your internal controls that take the pressure off of the dentist, because there's definitely ways to manage it. Social media, uh, probably hitting around the same thing. Uh, if you're posting on social media, you need to call out the pain in a very specific way to dentists. So call out specifically like, the wrong ways that people are doing it. How are you going to get people to pause and engage before giving it away, before telling them a better way to do that or giving them some options? Don't like get protective about this information. You have so much more to offer than a tweet, than a blog post. People are not a blog post or a tweet away from not needing you anymore. Uh, how could you put this in a video? Check something on, on YouTube. Just shoot a loom, shoot a screen recording of a slide deck. Don't overthink it. It's something you can have on hand because you're going to get questions from people about this as well. Uh, and you can just give it away. Uh, that video could be something where if they give you their email address on your website, that uh, they get sent that video. And it's, you know, three tips for how to manage cash deposits, that sort of thing. Uh, and then last podcast interview pitch. Um, getting on somebody's interview comes down oftentimes to writing a cold DM or an email to somebody that you haven't met before. You're going to be able to get onto a podcast with just about every single one of these problems. Um, when you're doing that pitch, uh, it is helpful for you to, you got to keep that super concise, but also show them proof of your expertise. So if you did a blog post, if you did a video or, you know, a Twitter thread that did well or something on LinkedIn that got engagement, refer out to that, say like, here's the basic outline. Would love to come and uh, help your listeners by sharing this process. Sometimes I think we focus too much on creating our own content when there are tons of people out there that already have distribution that are hungry for more content. Everybody that runs a podcast, that interviews people, all these things, like they have to keep that 
hopper full of new ideas and all that stuff. Everybody writing a newsletter. And if you can spoon feed that and make it super easy for them, they will be happy to have you on. Uh, second problem in the in the database here, one I've talked about before, how to tie out deposits to what comes through the bank. Um, I've talked about this one quite a way, but quite a bit, but basically in dental clinics, because you don't want to trust a staff person to get access to bank statements and all of that, how do you make sure that the cash deposits that get posted to the practice management system match what comes through the bank? Um, again, it's an issue of trust and somebody needing to have access to all those systems. It's usually either uh, the dentist that wastes a ton of time on it because it's really tedious or just doesn't get done at all and becomes like a massive source of potential theft. So we actually rolled out a service offering specifically for this. Probably the service offering that I was most proud of because it had nothing to do really with tax and accounting. Like you could stand this up. We did the whole reconciliation, not even in the accounting system, and they got a little monthly report proving out that all that stuff matches up at the end of each month. And it was a problem super specific to what they did. That was something that I didn't know any other tax or accounting firm was doing. And I could, you know, build content. I could talk about it on podcasts, exactly what our process was. And we built some custom automation stuff to make it faster. But I could literally show people, here is the right way to do it. And even then, they're not going to do it because they don't have a person who's straddling having access to the bank and all the systems they need to be able to do this. Like we can still provide that service for them. Um, But giving away the process and talking about the right way to do it like that is how we get people to discover us to begin with and highlight the fact that we do this. Does your current provider do this? Probably not. You know, people often ask me, Jason, who is this episode sponsored in part by? Well, today, this episode sponsored in part by LiveFlow. Did you hear the news? LiveFlow just launched a consolidation product. You actually might have seen it on the main channel recently. We did a whole demo day of it. LiveFlow's automated multi-entity consolidations, it's beyond simple to use. You can easily map multiple unmatching chart of accounts from multiple QuickBooks Online companies into one standardized report. And once it's set up, LiveFlow is going to get to work updating the consolidations automatically in real time, the realest of times. So you can focus on analysis using instantly updating data across entities. LiveFlow can even consolidate financials that are in different currencies. That sounds disgusting. Yikes. And it doesn't stop there. LiveFlow offers flexible, powerful reporting tools, great customized dashboards that meet your specific needs, you little snowflake. Build executive presentations, cash flow forecasts, and more with just a few clicks. The consolidation thing is actually super cool. If you haven't seen that yet, check it out on the main YouTube channel. And thanks to LiveFlow for sponsoring the pod. Third problem for dentists, uh, insurance billing. Uh, A lot of problems around the person on your team who's doing that insurance billing, whether they know what they're doing or not, it can actually make a huge difference in the amount of money that you're able to collect from insurance. And if you don't know, like if the dentist doesn't know what is possible and what isn't possible, it could be costing you a ton of money without you even realizing it. This one's a bigger departure from um, accounting and tax world. But there are more and more like managed billing services out there. Even a couple of accounting firms I've talked to that that do this or have an adjacent company that does this and they sell it to their clients. Um, there could be a partnership there that makes sense. But even if, if you just have had clients who have gone through a journey of getting it wrong before getting it right, documenting those stories and sharing those stories to other people, that's really valuable. Again, it doesn't have to be you that all the insights are coming from. If you are the mouthpiece for those insights, people attribute that value back to you. Like, and that's 
a totally legitimate way to help people. That is what I do. All the things I don't come up with are like are not my own novel ideas. I'm regurgitating stuff that I'm learning from my favorite firm owners out there and the conversations I have each week. Number four, hiring office managers. Um, really hard to find people who will do, quote unquote, that role of office manager. But as we went deeper and deeper into supporting clinics, we found there was actually a ton of the responsibilities that would normally fall on an office manager that we could help them with. So if you carve up all the responsibilities that go into that job description, we built processes for doing a lot of those things really well. Um, I try to not, you know, be all that protective about process. It's something I can put out there in front of people. And I, I do not think that's going to eliminate the need for people to come and, and hire me to do that process. But if we have a good understanding of 50% of what an office manager's responsibilities generally are, then show them how to get the clinic set up on ramp or, or manage, you know, your KPIs or like whatever those responsibilities would be, make that as easy as possible for them. And that could even be like a boot camp for your practice manager or a boot camp for somebody you want to promote to practice manager to show them how to do these things uh, in a way that's really helpful. And you may still be doing some of this stuff for clinics yourself, but it doesn't mean you still can't give away the playbook. Number five, uncertainty around leases. So a dental clinic moves into a space and they have to do a whole ton of like custom build out stuff for wiring and plumbing for the chairs. And like, there's a lot of tenant improvements that go into that, but you still don't own the space. So you've got risk around what if that person doesn't want to renew their, your lease and you just dumped all that money into TI and it's just going to go down the drain. Um, for most dentists, like if they just want to keep running their solo practice and that's kind of the journey they want to stay on at a certain point, it usually makes sense for them to buy their own building and do their own build out. Generally, they're going to be doing that like long-term at that point. So a cost segregation study makes sense. You eliminate the uncertainty of the lease, get a whole bunch of tax write-offs. And there were a lot of cost segregation groups that were selling to dentists, like here's how to eliminate your tax liability for the next three years. And they can be come off a little skeevy because obviously they're trying to sell cost segregation studies as opposed to you, who's a tax expert or an accounting expert advisor to dentists. You can come in and tell people, Here's where it makes sense. Here's where it doesn't make sense. Put that together in a, a blog post or white paper or go on a podcast talking about it. Your expertise straddles a bunch of different domains in a, in a pretty unique way where you understand how those things work, but you're not the one selling cost segregation studies. Like you're not the one who's going to be biased by that being even your business. So it makes you a great advisor and a, a killer interview for podcasts, that sort of thing. Uh, number six, the amount that insurance companies are paying to dentists for services are going down. Ultimately, they don't have control over what an insurance company will pay them for doing a certain type of service. And so this creates a lot of anxiety around insurance companies putting the screws to providers and not paying them maybe as much as they used to or other costs going up for a provider. But the amount that insurance is paying for those services is not going up. And so a lot of dentists right now are transitioning to fee for service or that is people just paying cash for treatments. And so there's a whole like uh, kind of wave in, in dental right now where you have clinics rolling up into larger groups. And I, that's a whole nother uh, thing that you could build content around is whether or not that's a good idea. But also like the transition to fee-for-service and to subscription uh, dental. So rather than telling somebody to go out and get a dental plan, like literally just kind of get on a subscription with my dental clinic, everything's fee-for-service, no insurance, 
And there's some people building some super profitable dental clinics that way. Um, far enough removed from accounting or tax where I don't know I would that I would, unless I had guided a number of people through this, I don't know that I would go out there myself and say that I'm an expert on this, but I certainly have a bunch of clients who have done it who can share their stories. And if I can be the mouthpiece for that and give those people a platform to share their stories, that's really valuable. And ultimately, you're then attracting like-minded folks to you because you're the mouthpiece. Uh, number seven item in my database here, associates. That is hiring third-party docs to come in and do dental work in your clinic. All the associates want to be contractors, so they can write off all sorts of stuff when they should probably be employees. So worker classification here in the U.S., a pretty sticky thing right now. Reality is associates are coming into your clinic. They're using your tools on the schedule that you're like outlining for them. They should probably be employees, but all the contractors want to be, all the associates want to be contractors because then they can write off more stuff than they would otherwise if they were an employee. And putting together a resource that is like, here are the rules, here's a decision tree, are they going to be an employee or not? Here are different ways that you can set up the engagement to where it could be okay for them to be a contractor, uh, even though that's probably not how you're doing it right now. Like here's an alternative way of engaging these people where they could be a contractor. Putting together information for the folks who don't want to go employee, outlining some of the upsides of, of going employee and why it's maybe not as bad as you think it is. That's a really common talking point. Every time a doc pulls in some other doc to do dental work for them, there's this big fist fight over contractor versus employee. Uh, it is a super contentious thing that you can build some really helpful content around. Number eight, uh, how to make money when you start pulling in associates. So it's one thing for a dentist to make money in their own clinic. It's a whole nother thing to start pulling in uh other dentists who they have to pay massive amounts of money to come do work in their clinic. Oftentimes, a dentist gets to a point where they, they're outgrowing just themselves and they want to like open more locations and pull in more associates and serve more people. And almost inevitably, when they outgrow themselves, that next part of their business doesn't really make any money. They're basically just growing their business and paying it all back out to the associate. So it's like, what's the point? You may have a 50% margin with you doing all of your own work, but when you're paying half of what you're making out to the associate, like why make your business bigger just to make these other people money? And that's what pretty much every dentist does when they grow beyond a certain point. And so if you work with you know non-dentists, whoever it is, everybody kind of has this, this sort of path that they go down that is the agreed upon path of what success looks like within that domain. What is the next step you grow to and the step after that and the step after that? And for most people, it looks more or less the same. Um, I've mentioned a couple times uh, The Pathless Path, a really good book, talks a lot about the default path and how most of us settle into the default path that is what our circumstances tell us success look like and looks like. So if you go to a big four firm, maybe that's, you know, hitting senior senior and manager and partner eventually. And like that is the default path because that environment tells you that's what success looks like. For pretty much any type of entrepreneurship, there is a default path of growing through these different steps. For dentists, that is going to work for a corporate dentist out of school and being a W-2 employee to then uh, being a contract doc for someone else, to then opening your own clinic, to then pulling a contract doc into your own clinic, to then having multiple locations for your clinic, that sort of thing. There's kind of this progression that whether that, whether that progression leads to success or not is like 
up for debate, but that's kind of the progression everybody looks at and says, ooh, that's what success looks like. And so for each of those thresholds that your type of entrepreneur crosses, what are the traps? Because we see people get the exact same things wrong over and over again, right? And if you've got somebody or people that are coming into that next threshold or considering whether passing that threshold is for them or not, you've got much greater transparency than any of those people do to see into the reality of what's on the other side of that. Simply sharing the things that you already know, tremendously helpful for people. I'm thinking about this a lot. Um, The notion and some of the upcoming podcast episodes are focused on this sort of managing of information. You have the information in your head right now with which to write a book, like with which to write an infinite number of social media posts and blog posts and all that stuff. Because you sit there and you answer questions all day and you deal with these people all day long. You have a tremendous amount of information up in your noggin. What is the best way to get that out in a scalable way to people? Because it's all up there, right? The problem is it's not in the right format. There's more than enough information in your head to put a book out about uh, you know, everything you know about the niche that you work with. The problem is the format. It's not out in a book form, right? So how do we document this stuff in a better way so that we can use tools to then get that knowledge uh, into a better format? Uh, I've been thinking about that a lot lately, especially as AI tools, I think, are kind of unlocking the repurposing of information that we have documented. And the problem for a lot of us right now is we just we haven't documented that stuff. We just know it. And the only time that thing, that information ever gets loose from our brain is in one-on-one conversations with people who have already engaged you, which is the lowest leverage possible way to use that information, right? This episode is sponsored in part by Cloud, Cloud Accountant Staffing. Y'all know I'm a big advocate of hiring offshore. One of the biggest changes I've made in my firm, we transitioned a legacy firm from 100% onshore local hiring to 100% distributed US and then 100% distributed globally hiring. And honestly, is the best thing I, we did. It virtually alleviated all of our hiring pains, completely changed how we thought about staffing projects and the type of work that we wanted to bring on. Because you know what? The folks we hired offshore, really freaking good. A lot of misconceptions around the type of people that you hire offshore uh, because your enterprises will oftentimes use offshore folks for like menial work. Absolutely not the case. Uh, There are tens of thousands of people working for big four accounting firms, you know, offshore uh, outside the US. You can get folks that can do anything from tax to junior level stuff to super senior level stuff. Uh, But try to do that yourself, figure it all out yourself. That's going to be hard. It's going to be scary. Really good place to start. Cloud accountant staffing, they will hold your hand through that process. Their story is super simple. Uh, An accounting firm in the US hired a bunch of people in the Philippines, fell in love with them, but didn't fall in love with the fees they were having to pay to the staffing companies that were managing these employees. So they built their own solution and now they're starting to pull other accountants in. I'd encourage you, a, a big tipping point for me was when I was like, I'm going to stop being opinionated on this and just try to learn. And so I talked with other practitioners. I talked with some of the vendors that would like help you get into offshoring. Uh, that really opened things up for me. So if you've been on the fence, I'd encourage you to at least learn about it. And if you start heading down that path, consider cloud accountant staffing. Problem number nine, getting the bills paid. It's just the last thing in the world that most dentists want to do. They don't want to trust someone else to sign checks or you know whatever old-timey way they're using of paying things. Obviously, there's lots of great 
better bill pay solutions there. Number 10, managing cash flow around pay cycles. Just like every other small business, a lot of uh, docs struggle with managing short-term cash flow, uh, knowing when the credit card payment's coming out and the big monthly supply bill and maybe the big monthly lab fees, where that lands in relation to like the payroll twice a month. This is something we helped a ton of people with short-term cash flow because for whatever reason, people like to run cash as tight as possible and it makes it exponentially harder to manage just because they won't leave 50 grand in the account. And we built some tools for for managing short-term ca- cash flow that honestly we could have just given away and said, hey, here's a, here's a one-pager, a Google Sheet, a uh, spreadsheet, whatever that you can use as a template, do this every single week uh, for planning out cash. Are they going to do it? Probably not. Maybe they'll pull a member of their team in to do it, but it's still super valuable. It's still a sort of thing you go on a podcast and talk about like it's still a killer giveaway that somebody would happily trade their email address to get that template back from you. Uh, number 11, peril and benefits confusion. I would just as is the case for every small business owner, payroll and benefits are just the last thing in the world they want to fuss with. Number 12, hiring your spouse. So it's interesting. Hiring your spouse looks different in like every type of entrepreneurship, I think, but there's some version of it just about everywhere. And if they do anything on social media, that extends to hiring your children. Um, and so there's, there's a real, almost like, people want to find a way to hire their spouse, like, and then maybe it's because they hear about their colleagues doing it in ways that aren't that great. Um, but something that I think is helpful is within your domain, what is like, can you write a legitimate job description for things that your spouse could come in and do so that you can pay them so that you can make contributions to their 401k, that sort of thing. That's usually the main upside in the case of dentists. And you, you absolutely can. Like there are tasks that need to get done inside of every single dental clinic that are not complex tasks that you could totally have uh, a spouse come in and help out with. So you could totally write a white paper or, or whatever you want that is a list of like, here are all the things that they can do. Here are some templates for how you can document the work that they're doing every week, as you should if they are employees. And literally write the book on like how to employ your spouse if that's something that they want to do because there are financial upsides to doing so. Number 13, how to deduct a vehicle or mileage. Uh, most dentists are just commuting from home to their dental clinic and commuting is not generally deductible. So it's pretty tricky for a dentist to be able to write off a vehicle or mileage, but there are things you can do. Like if you've got a PO box that's by your house, the mileage from the PO box of the clinic then becomes deductible, stuff like that. Basically, the, there's a an oversimplified view of like what is deductible for most, um, most entrepreneurs in general. Like they just think if I go out and lease a vehicle, then just because I'm paying a lease, now I can write off this whole thing. Or because I bought this vehicle, I can write off this whole thing uh, because it's over 6,000 gross vehicle weight rating or something like that. But specifically, what does writing off a vehicle look like for your specific type of entrepreneur? That's really helpful information because what they're seeing on TikTok and elsewhere is all generic, not being put through the lens of, of beekeepers and, and how exactly they can write off their vehicles or not write off their vehicles. Uh, a couple more here. Number 14, help documenting th- the old corporate planning trip. So they go on a trip and then they want to write it off. Obviously, there's rules around how productive you have to be on that trip and, and showing that you actually did work each of those days. 
uh, give them some templates for what it looks like to tick that due diligence box of being able to show what work got done on those days. If you tell people, okay, you can go on your trip, but you have to document what you do, in all likelihood, they're going to forget. They're not going to do it, or they're not going to do it in a very robust way. And so if you've got some resources, you can give them to make it as easy as possible to document that stuff in a way that will stand up. Uh, that's a super valuable giveaway that you can give to clients and non-clients uh, to make those the deductibility of those trips easier to support. And then number 15, oh man, payroll and HR complications when you run multiple locations across multiple entities. This comes up with any multi-entity company groups. Um, most commonly with dental clinics is when you have several locations and they're each their own LLCs that are owned by a parent company. Uh, people struggle with, okay, I've got people that work in different locations. Uh, I don't want every single location to be its own employer because I want to have like shared common benefits and I don't want to have to employ somebody in multiple of my entities. And the answer is usually to have like a you know labor leasing company or run it out of the holding company and then bill it down to the subsidiaries. But this is like stuff that for accountants, you can get your head around, but normies absolutely can't get your head around. So some tools for calculating that stuff on an ongoing basis templates for invoicing the subsidiaries, you know, from the parent company, uh, according to gross wages and employer payroll taxes and the cost benefits and all that stuff. Um, if I were going to go after dentists who, and this is actually who we we're focused on, larger dentists who are running multiple locations or getting into running multiple locations was kind of our, uh, our sweet spot and the most profitable uh, cast engagements we had because we were doing a bunch of back office stuff for them from paying bills and managing cash and all that stuff. And so if those are the people we're trying to attract, this would be killer content to put out is how does your setup fundamentally need to change when you grow beyond a single location? So we could give away assets for this. We can interview clients who tell their story of the things that they got wrong go on podcasts talking about, hey, are you considering like doing this thing? Here's 10 traps to avoid, that sort of thing. Um, oftentimes when we're thinking about like who is that ideal client, we will go to an industry like beekeepers. And in most cases, that's probably not specific enough. For that industry, what are the tipping points where you see people get stuff wrong a lot? And it's usually when you're crossing those thresholds into kind of a new a new paradigm of what it looks like to be in that profession. Like we talked about, you know, op opening up your first clinic for the first time and then going to multiple clinics. Like for each of those milestones, those, those sort of new thresholds they're crossing into, those are great places to um, build a bunch of content around to catch folks as they are going through that process. Because that's the sort of thing that's going to stop them in their tracks and be like, oh my gosh, this is me. I'm in this this particular spot right now, it's what keeps me up at night. And there's a tax person or there's an accounting person talking about this thing that is so specific. And at that point, you're the only person they've ever seen talk about problems that specific to them at that stage for them. And they can't imagine working for anybody else. So you're able to bring them in at, you know, way better rates than you would a normal sort of general client that comes in off the website or something. If you're thinking about this database in the context of a team, Building out this database of problems, uh, I think, becomes even more helpful because as you're trying to enable your team to support these clients over time, uh, you can build helpful resources around each of these problems that they can then share with clients. So for every problem in the database, can you link this out to some assets that you've already created? 
Uh, big problem accounts run into is the business you build around yourself, once you hit your limits, and that may be at 750 grand in revenue, it could be one and a half million in revenue, but once you kind of hit the limit of what you can manage with a team, the clients that come in and are served entirely by your team usually have to look different. The client that you bring in for you is not necessarily the same type of client that you would bring in for yourself. And so how do you instill in your team that really domain-specific expertise that you've built up over time? Um, capturing what's in that noodle uh, by building assets, videos, blog posts, uh, podcast interviews, all that stuff. If you can then associate these back, those things back with these problems, then when your team is working with clients down the road, you've got an embarrassment of resources that you can throw at your clients to be helpful. I mean, imagine, imagine a client asking a member of your team a question and, and they can be like, here's kind of the three or four sentence answer or go check out this 40-minute podcast interview that, that um, you did with this you know, well-respected person in the profession. Talk about a razzle-dazzle answer like, to a question, right? Like that's going to make you look really smart and remind them that you are super plugged into the problems that are specific to their domain. And this may all be stuff that you're capable of like shooting from the hip and doing right now. Like, why do I need a database of these problems if I can just sit down and just give that answer to anybody when they come and ask me? That's also the problem is the fact that right now people can only get that expertise from you in one-on-one -on -one ways. So we need to start thinking about how we document our, our domain expertise in a way that's going to be accessible to your team and in a way that enables building assets around it that people can consume while you sleep so that your expertise is not only going out there when you're sitting there across you know a zoom or a table talking with somebody right uh, i i first saw this from jay klaus um i thought this was just an interesting framing of beginning to document your subject matter expertise one that i hadn't seen before oftentimes where we start is maybe writing blog posts. And so the closest thing you have to this is a collection of blog posts, but that's not actually representative of what your client's problems are. I want to see a list of what your client's problems are, whether they have anything to do with accounting or tax or not. Like what are the things that most keep them up at night? So that as you're building that avatar of who you're selling to and who you're putting content out for, you're not super fixated on your problems through the lens of what they do. You're just thinking about their problems and how you can help, whether it has anything to do with tax or accounting or not. If you got that domain you're working with, I highly re recommend taking 20 minutes to jot down that list as a starting point, maybe pulling your team in to help build out that list a little further. As you're thinking about how do we come up with content ideas and things to talk about, to have this sitting on the shelf, this database of problems, that's going to make that whole process way easier. So get out there and solve some problems. See you in the next one.